Well, it's obviously Memorial Day weekend. We can tell that just by looking around. And tomorrow, obviously, we celebrate this day of remembrance and we honor all of those who have sacrificed their lives for our freedom. We remember all those who serve our country and the armed forces today. Thank God for each and every one. As we look into God's Word this morning, I think of the connection that this passage has to our soldiers, because soldiers understand the principle of standing orders. Others in the medical profession certainly understand that principle as well. But standing orders are orders held to be in force until specifically withdrawn. It doesn't matter if the conditions change or the circumstances are different. If you have a standing order, then you must carry out that order until the mission is completed. Now, I never served in the military but I do serve in the army of Jesus Christ. How about you? And Jesus left us with standing orders for a global mission. I'm beginning a new study this morning in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is all about the mission of the church, and I say mission, not missions. The Church of Jesus Christ has one mission to accomplish in this world. We are to make disciples of all nations. That's our mission. And Jesus left us with standing orders to be carried out irrespective of changing conditions, irrespective of changing methods and circumstances and cultures and situations. The sad truth, of course, is that as churches, we often, and as Christians, we often lose sight of our orders in the comforts of our lives, the way we like things to be, the way we like to function. So, This morning, as we begin in Acts, I invite you to explore with me over our study of this great book how Christ's standing orders apply to us as Christians and as particularly a church, Galilee Baptist Church, in 2011 and beyond. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 this morning as we begin our study together. And the first principle that I want to look at in the opening verses here is that our mission is to continue His mission. Acts chapter 1, let's look at verses 1 and 2. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he, had be, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. I, so, there was an online description of a real estate listing 
this real estate listing in this online description was in Dallas, Texas. And the headline of the real estate ad read, Converted Church. (laughs) Think about those terms together. Converted Church. It had been a church. Now it was somebody's home and it was for sale. According to the realtor, John Whiteside, the ad went like this. De-sanctified churches are the number one type of building converted to residential use. Now think about those terms for a minute. <laughs> I mean, we talk about our church home, but that gives new meaning to the whole concept, doesn't it? De-sanctified churches are the number one type of building converted to residential use. The article went on to say, the altar has been adapted for use as a granite and stainless steel themed kitchen in homage to the cooking gods. That's right out of the ad, in homage to the cooking gods. It went on, the choir loft has been rewired for a home theater. There was no baptistry, but there was a soaking tub and among other things, a game room, a music room, and an exercise studio, all for about $2 million you could have this place. The 15,000 square foot church slash home has 11 bedrooms. Nice to know that everybody can sleep comfortably once the church has been desanctified and converted. Now, you and I know that the church is not a building, right? The church is people. It's not this building. It's not any building. It is people. We are the church. But when any church, meaning the people, lose sight of their mission, that church will die. And all over this country there are churches being converted. By that, I mean buildings being converted to other uses where the church, the people, have lost sight of their mission and died. If we here at Galilee lose sight of our mission, we too will die. And the building will be converted into a mini-mall or something. I don't know. The book of Acts was written so that we won't forget our mission, our standing orders from Jesus. So as we go through this study, I hope you understand, and I hope God stimulates in me and in us what it means to live out our mission in the 21st century here in Gorham and the surrounding area. The author of Acts was a medical doctor named Luke. And Dr. Luke begins this story, this report, by saying that Acts is the continuation of a previous report that he prepared for a man named Theophilus. Now that previous report is the book of Luke. 
Acts is simply the continuation of the book of Luke. In the opening verses of Luke, we read, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly an account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So, Luke begins with this orderly report. Acts is the second part of that orderly report, the second part of the story, if you will. The first report, he says in Acts, was all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And I want you to notice those opening words in Acts chapter 1. It is all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. That word right there in an emphatic sense right in the beginning of the book of Acts clues us in to the point of Acts. The point of Acts is the continuation of what Jesus began to do and to teach. Jesus didn't stop doing and Jesus didn't stop teaching when he went to heaven. Jesus is continuing to do and continuing to teach. He's doing it now through us, his church. So we are called to continue his mission. And that is why Luke goes on to say that Jesus had given orders by the Holy Spirit. And what are those orders? What are those standing orders? Well, once again, you have to look back to the book of Luke because this is the continuation of what he has just finished. And in our sequence of Bible books, of course, John intervenes, so we don't quite catch that. But if you go back to Luke chapter 24 and verses 45 to 49 as the book closes, there's a couple of verses after that in Luke, but we read, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. This is Jesus teaching them. And he told them, this is after the the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So there you have it. Those are the standing orders that he left for the apostles. The good news of Jesus Christ is to be proclaimed to all nations. It is global. The mission is a global mission. Anything short of that mission is a truncated mission. For that is the mission of Jesus Christ. He has a heart for the whole world. And we are to be witnesses to the entire world that Jesus died and rose again and that by repentance everyone can have forgiveness for their sins. So the mission of the church is to tell the world this message, the message of Jesus. Now, I have been reading many books this past year on the subject of being church. What does it mean to be the church? 
the church of Jesus Christ today. And I've come across a term that I like. The term is glocal. Glocal. You'll notice that the mission of the church began, of course, in Jerusalem. That's where they were located, and we'll look next Sunday at this uh, statement that he makes uh, later in verse 8, that where you begin in Jerusalem. So that's local. But it extended to the entire world. That's global. So, global. We have a global mission. I kind of like that. One of the books I have been reading is a book by Tim Chester and Steve Timmis called Total Church. They are the leaders... We're not all that familiar with them here in this country, but they are the leaders of a network of churches that have been started out of the United Kingdom, out of Great Britain, and it is called the Crowded House. And this network of churches called the Crowded House has been planting churches around England, and now they've extended out to the international sphere. I've been challenged as I read this book convicted by these particular pastors that we as a church, me as a pastor, we can easily end up focusing on maintenance instead of mission. We want to maintain what we are, what we have, all of that. But when we start to focus on maintenance instead of mission, we start to die. And that's an easy trap to fall into, isn't it? I'm convicted by that. I have been, as I read this book and several others, that the church must always focus on her mission in order to be vital and alive and vibrant and not on maintenance. We have a mission. The mission is a global mission, if you will. We need to then get out of the maintenance mode and into the missional mode of thinking as a pastor, as Christians, as a church, as leadership. Our mission is to continue his mission. And we're going to explore that theme in the book of Acts and what it means for our lives today. Second principle. Our confidence comes from his confirmation. Verse 3. To these, that is the, the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So, following the death of Jesus, the disciples... Obviously, they were confused, they were scared, they were discouraged, they were ready to quit. You can go back to the Gospels and read the story. Some of them headed back to their their fishing nets, back to their businesses. It was over. They were done. They were scared. They were confused. Everything that they had been doing with Jesus didn't make sense anymore. He died. But in just 40 days, after this brutal crucifixion, these same scared, confused men and women were totally changed into bold, powerful witnesses that literally, even historically literally, changed the world. What happened? 
What happened? What makes people so totally and radically change like that? Well, we know what happened. The resurrection happened, and Jesus was alive. He was not dead. These men who were scared and confused were now on fire for Jesus. They had absolute proof, if you will, that Jesus was alive, and that proof transformed their lives. Jesus lit a fire in them that is still burning today, over 2,000 years later, in the lives of people like you and me who live in this world. Now that's a fire. The text says that Jesus presented himself to them as a living person. He did so with many convincing proofs. The Greek word means a sure sign, or that which causes something to be known in a decisive manner. These were proofs. Now, the Bible records no less than ten different appearances of the living Jesus to his followers in those 40 days. He didn't just appear to one or two. It wasn't continuous. He wasn't constantly being visible to them during those 40 days. But ten different times he appeared. Now, if you're looking for proof that Jesus was alive, let's be honest, a single appearance of Jesus with a few people in an isolated situation, well, how good is that for proof? I mean, people hallucinate. People lie. So, can we really depend upon that for proof? Well, probably not, but Jesus didn't leave it there, did he? Through 40 days, he presented himself alive time and time again, ten different times actually, to all kinds of different people so that it couldn't just be denied as an hallucination or, or somebody's conspiracy or a lie or something. He proved it over and over again. That's proof beyond any doubt. All right, in sequential order, Jesus appeared, we know, to the women at the tomb. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He, he, he walked the Emmaus Road with the disciples and talked with them and appeared to them. He appeared to Peter in Jerusalem, who had denied him three times, right? He appeared to the ten in Jerusalem. And Thomas wasn't there, so then he appeared to the eleven in Jerusalem, because Thomas was a skeptic. He appeared to the seven disciples fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They'd gone back to work. He appeared to the eleven in Galilee, the northern province of Israel. He appeared to 500 followers at once. He appeared to James, his own biological brother. Jesus used this proof of himself as a live uh, as being alive time and time again and we know also that during these appearances he ate with them 
He drank with them. He let them touch him. He let them feel him. He taught them repeatedly. He wasn't just showing up and disappearing, but he taught them extensively as the continuation of everything that Jesus began to do and to teach until he ascended. Talk about proof. That's a lot of proof. And that's what our faith is founded upon. Our faith Our Christian faith is founded upon historical proof that was verified time and time and time again. It's not a lie. It's not a conspiracy. It's not something somebody dreamed up. That wouldn't change their lives. Most of these men would die for their their faith. They had to know something tangible and real, and that is that Jesus is alive. And that's what our faith is founded upon. A living Jesus. Anything short of that, and you'll give up on the mission. Because it won't be worth it, will it? Because we know he is alive, we can face this world with confidence. Our message is certain, so our future is secure in our living Lord. That's powerful. Jesus used this time then to teach them. To teach them the message they were to deliver to this world. He taught them about the kingdom of God. Did you see that expression? Now, if you go back and you read the Gospels, you will see that all the way through the Gospels, Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of God. Over and over and over again, we see this expression, either kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom. That was his message. He is still teaching them about the kingdom in these 40 days. The kingdom of God was Christ's message to the world. Everything that he did, everything that he taught dealt with the kingdom of God. Now, I wish I had time this morning to develop that that concept of the kingdom down through Scripture, but we'll see this theme over and over again throughout the book of Acts as well. So, So let me just summarize very quickly what the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God refers to God's rule over this earth. In one sense, God's rule is universal. He always has ruled, and he always will rule over the universe. That's a constant. God is always in charge. But in another sense, we have the messianic rule of God on earth. Now, the messianic rule of God has to do with his kingdom on earth, not just his rule over the universe. What did did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom, the universal rule of God, was always existing. But they were to want the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's the messianic kingdom with King Jesus. The messianic kingdom... The rule of God comes in two stages in the scriptures. Jesus inaugurated the first stage, if you will, of his messianic rule when he came to this earth. 
He began his messianic kingdom over 2,000 years ago. And he is still ruling today in heaven. It is, however, a spiritual ruling, obviously. The second stage of that messianic rule is yet future to us. That's why we can still say, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The second stage is yet future. Jesus will come again. He will rule physically upon this planet. We live in the now while we await the not yet. We are part of his kingdom now, Colossians will tell us. We have been transferred into his kingdom. But we will see the completion and the fruition fruition of his kingdom when he comes back. That's the second stage of the messianic rule of God. Our message is the kingdom of God, his rule. Our message is not open for debate. It's not open for compromise. We don't create our message. We don't invent our message. When you start a church, you're already given the message of Jesus. We may change methods. We may do things differently from church to church, from place to place, culture to culture, but not the message. The message is fixed by Jesus as are his standing orders, as part of his standing orders to us. Now, our message then is about what Jesus did and what Jesus taught, and that's the kingdom of God, and that you can be a part of that kingdom by repentance and the forgiveness of sins through what Jesus did on the cross. We will see this theme over and over again in the book of Acts as well. Luke has stressed this theme all the way through the book of Luke. And he will do so in Acts as well. In fact, the book of Acts will end on this same note. Paul, under house arrest in Rome, at the end of the book of Acts, is still preaching the kingdom of God. Acts 28, 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's still doing it at the end of the book. Still the same message. Now, you have to understand, we have to understand that the book of Acts is an open-ended book. It's a book without a conclusion. Why? We're writing the conclusion. Well, we're writing part of the continuing story. I don't know yet if it's the conclusion. But we're writing the continuing story of Acts here in Gorham, Maine, and in Indonesia, and in South America, and in Africa. The story of Acts is still being written by the hand of Jesus because the story of Acts is simply the continuation of what Jesus began to do and to teach when he walked this earth. In Orenburg, Russia, they're writing the story of Acts, right? You are. 
Steve and Joan. It's the continuation of all that God has been doing. And it is our job to preach the kingdom of God by proclaiming the power of Jesus as king. It's not our job to build buildings. Nothing wrong with buildings. But that's not our job. It's not our job to create corporations. The church is neither in its essence, obviously. The church is people gathered together, loving on each other, on a mission to reach this entire globe for the kingdom of God. That's the church. That's every local church that is healthy. Hugh Halter, co-author of the book called The Tangible Kingdom, shares a moment that changed the way he approached unbelievers. He was in Queens, New York, um, just shortly after, two weeks after, actually, he writes, two weeks after 9-11, he was in Queens, New York. And he was there to train some church planters in the city of New York. And so he was there for an extended period of time, and each day they would have these sessions, and he would be teaching training church planters in New York City. At night, he and several others would go down to a local Irish pub to eat dinner. And the same waitress waited on them each night. Her name was Fiona. She was from Ireland. And so they began to engage Fiona in conversation, and she appeared quite interested in in conversing with them. But she was pretty much anti-church, anti-religion. And she said to them early in the week, or said to him, why would you help pastors lead their churches if churches don't do any good at it anyway? And he, he knew from talking to her that she had grown up in Ireland and that one-third of her Irish friends in the 80s and 90s were sexually abused in the religious school system there, the Catholic school system, that two of her friends were killed in a a Protestant-Catholic conflict when she was growing up. So he realized that her bitterness toward organized religion, toward the church, was pretty deep. So he asked God to show him how to talk with her. And he began to talk with her about the kingdom of God and the love of Jesus. He said, Fiona, Jesus came to offer an alternative way of life from all the exclusive religious, sectarian, sinful ways people lived. He called it the kingdom, and it was huge for people back in the day and also for anyone looking for the real God. I have never heard of the kingdom, she responded. Tell me about it. So he did. His final night in town, he came to say goodbye before flying back to Oregon, where he was from. And as he walked into the pub, he heard Fiona yell over the crowded room, Hey, everyone, that's the guy I was telling you about. You've got to hear how he talks about God. As the bar room split and she called all of her friends over, she looked at Hugh and she said, Tell them what you told me. You know all that stuff about the kingdom. And so he began to tell them too. You know what happened next? They planted a church. It was basically just, first of all, a group of people that started getting together to talk about the kingdom of God and Jesus. 
and eventually resulted in a church plant. And he said, you know what? I was amazed. It was nothing we did. It was so easy. It just happened. Because God was at work planting another extension of his kingdom on earth through the witness of someone who was willing to just talk about the kingdom of God. Lots of people today, lots of people, you know them, I know them, lots of people have been turned off on church, haven't they? They've been turned off on religion. They don't want to talk about that stuff. They don't want to listen. They're tired of church. But they can be turned on to Jesus and his kingdom way of life. That's our message today. But I want to add something very, very important because Jesus did. The power is not in us. It's not vested in you and me. It's not how clever we can be in our words and our arguments. It's not how good we can be in terms of what we do for people. The power is not vested in us. The power is the power of God the Holy Spirit who changes lives in the 21st century, wherever you are. Our success, third principle, depends on His Spirit. Verses 4 and 5 in this section we're looking at. And Jesus, gathering them together, commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit many days, not many days from now. In many ways, the book we call the Acts of the Apostles should really be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostles, if you want, because it is really about God the Holy Spirit and what he did in this world during that initial establishment of the church. It's all about what the Holy Spirit does. It's not us. We can't do this on our own. The Holy Spirit empowers us to carry out our mission. And only as the Holy Spirit empowers us can we carry out that mission. So I really want to take, through our study of the book of Acts, a fresh look at the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, oftentimes we neglect this very important doctrine, the third person of the triune God. And we will see God at work. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead at work in the book of Acts. Jesus tells them, he gathers them together. Luke, by the way, in describing that in chapter 24, indicates they were eating and drinking. And Jesus ate and drank with them. In fact, the word, the Greek word that is used gathered here implies gathering to eat together. They were eating a meal. He gathered them together and began to teach them. And he, he tells them that they are not to leave Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father. Now I'd put the verse from Luke 24 up there earlier this, this morning where you realize that he said the very same thing to them, that they would be empowered, they, they would stay there, they would be empowered by the, by the Spirit of God. Right? 
So he's talking about that promise from the Father. And it is the gift of the Holy Spirit who will empower them to fulfill their mission according to Luke 24, 49. So they were to wait in Jerusalem until that time that they would be empowered to do this work. What God has promised is, he calls here, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says, John baptized with water, God will baptize with the Holy Spirit. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? When do we get it? I mean, they had to wait for it. They were specifically told to wait for it in the city of Jerusalem before they could begin their mission. Do we have to wait for it? Now, I'll say a whole lot more about that as we study the book of Acts. <laughs> but I can't leave it there this morning. I have to at least discuss it here this morning. Let, let me summarize the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit this morning. The word baptize means to immerse or dip. That's actually what the word means. It was used for dipping of 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 garments in dye so that they would be changed in color, that kind of thing. John immersed in water. He dipped in water. He immersed in water. God will immerse with the Holy Spirit. We've just transliterated the word baptize here, but it's really the, the word that means to immerse. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is God's immersion of his followers into the church, the body of Christ, by immersing them in the Holy Spirit. And that was a brand new work of God in this world. The church had not existed before Acts chapter 2, where we will see the baptism of the Holy Spirit take place. So these disciples had to wait for the baptism because they had to be immersed into the body of Christ, immersed in the Spirit of God as the church began. But we do not have to wait any longer. The rest of the New Testament makes that very clear. We are baptized into the body of Christ called the church when we become Christians. It is immediate, it is final for all of us today. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For we were, this is past tense now, we were all baptized, immersed with one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. That's already happened. You aren't a Christian if it didn't happen. Every Christian is immersed into the Spirit of God, and by the Spirit of God is immersed into the church, the body of Christ. That's our entry into the church. From the time that the church then begins, was born, if you will, in Acts chapter 2, every Christian is baptized with the Spirit of God into the body of Christ at the moment of conversion. So, that's a very quick summary And we will talk about this more and more as we go through the book of Acts, particularly when we get to chapter 2. But what that means to us from a practical standpoint is that you don't have to wait for the Spirit of God. He's in you now. And he has placed you in the body now. 
if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You have all that God is, in terms of the Spirit of God, available to empower you to do what he wants you to do. So there's no excuse you see that, well, (laughs) we can't do that. Somebody else might be able to accomplish that. We can't. No way. We have all of the power of the Spirit of God from the moment we become Christians available to us. We must rely then on the Spirit of God if we're going to carry out his mission on earth. We don't have the ability ourselves to carry out that mission. God gives us his power. One of the popular ads for the Super Bowl this past year was a Volkswagen commercial. You probably saw it if you watched uh, the commercials anyway on the Super Bowl. It was a a little child dressed in a Darth Vader costume. And um, he was attempting to use the force, and they played the Star Wars music and all of that. He was attempting to use the force to move objects, right? He's dressed in this Darth Vader costume and everything. And so the boy marches down the hallway to the utility closet, and he goes like this to to the dryer, and nothing happens. And then he goes into another room and the dog's lying on the floor and so he he summons the force and he goes like this and nothing happens to the dog just sort of looks at him he goes into his sister's bedroom and there's a doll sitting there and he points his hands at the doll and he's going to invest it with the force and the doll just sort of looks back at him blankly and then you see the little boy going into the kitchen and he's slumped he's old he's all dejected He's wearing his Darth Vader helmet and he's holding it in his hands and he's just totally dejected, no power. And as he's there in the kitchen, he hears his father drive in the driveway and he runs outside. He's got some new energy, new chance. He hasn't given up yet. And his father walks by him and gives him a hug and goes inside and he stands there by the car and he he gets ready and he invests the force in this and oh, like this and the car starts up just like that the lights come on and the engine comes on and of course you see the dad in the kitchen having fun and he's got the uh, remote ignition starter right and he's turning it on for him it works startled he looks around what's going on I've got the power <laughs> well I think that's a lot like us as Christians sometimes. It's not in us. Just as that child could do nothing without the intervention of the Father, we can do nothing without the power of the Holy Spirit. And the problem sometimes is we take credit, right? We take credit. Yeah, look what I did. It's nothing. It's what God does that matters. Everything that is of kingdom level accomplishment in this world is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through you and me. And all we're doing is being available to be used by him. He chooses to do all that through us. 
as we go through the book of Acts, I want to be very practical and talk about how we can align ourselves with his mission to carry that out here in Gorham, the surrounding area, and across the world. And I pray that we will do that. Search and rescue personnel risk their lives in dangerous situations all the time. One team in Colorado said millions of people visit the mountains of Larimer County, Colorado each year. Few will become lost, stranded, or injured. Some will die. Our objective is to find and rescue these lost or injured people before it's too late. We are dedicated to saving lives. Nevada's Washoe County Search and Rescue Team went on 74 searches in one year, bringing 95 persons to safety, recovering the bodies of nine other people. The U.S. Coast Guard in one year made 54,609 rescue trips by boat or aircraft, saving 3,661 lives. The search and rescue team motto, this we do so others may live. This we do so others may live. That ought to be the motto of the church, don't you think? That's the mission of Jesus. He's left us us with standing orders to carry out that mission. And I am praying, very seriously praying, that God will revitalize us, certainly as a church, through the study of the book of Acts, and us as Christians, me as a pastor, you as as members and involved uh, servants of the Lord here in this ministry, that he will align our hearts with his mission. And that we will take on that motto, this we do so others may live. That ought to be the motto for each and every one of us, wherever and however God calls us to serve him. This we do so others may live. Father, help us. Help us to align our hearts with your heart, our ministries with your mission that we might realize we are here for a purpose. And it's not just to have a nice church with nice programming, and all of that is good. But we are here to strengthen one another that we might go and carry out the mission you've given us. It is your power at work. It is you, Holy Spirit, who change us, who give us the power to do it, And through us, you are changing lives around this world. Keep us faithful. Keep us aligned to your heart, God. In Jesus' name, amen.